It's a jackalope carnival. Jack, jack, jackalope. Jackalope carnival. Hi, I'm Becca. Hi, I'm Eric. And if you came to listen to the Joe Rogan experience, you're on the wrong show. You're now listening to Jackalope Carnival, a sideshow of stories, a biweekly podcast where we explore the paranormal, the unusual, and the downright odd. I assign Zoas, the Eritrean wife of Kybera, to Earth and to Hermes. I bind her food and her drink, her sleep and her laughter, her meetings and her Sithra playing, her entrance, her pleasure, her little buttocks, her thoughts, her eyes, the Earth. <laughs> That was impressive. <laughs> Thank you. I have talents. So what I just read was a comment recently left on our Instagram page. <laughs> <What's> just, <not? laughs> just kidding. Um, but feel free to leave your weird, silly, or insightful comments on at Jackalope Carnival. No curses. <laughs> yeah. No one has cursed our little butt axes. Uh, not, no. Don't do it. So... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is kind of uh, so what you actually just heard was an, an ancient Greek binding curse, and it was found on a lead curse tablet or, or called in Greek katadesmos, which were surprisingly common in the ancient Mediterranean world. Uh, but if you have Mediterranean ancestry, as I do, uh, you've probably had your family members talk about curses because I know my grandmother certainly did. Really? What did she say? <laughs> I know that she, you know, the evil eye is throughout the Mediterranean, having the evil eye and someone will curse you, Moloikia, and the Moloikia, or Morlokio, Moloikia, you have to, if someone basically envies you or looks at you with envy, that can give you the evil eye, and then she'd have to do something with oil and water and take the curse off. So this was something, this is something I'm familiar with because, uh, yeah, definitely, but this is a binding curse. And like I said, what's interesting is that this curse wasn't meant to do terrible harm. It wasn't mutilating. It was simply restraining. We don't know exactly who Zoas is, but it's thought that possibly she might have been a love rival or a rival in work. So it's thought that perhaps she was, because of her Sithra playing, she was a, an entertainer. And maybe she was a rival entertainer. So you know, stop her from doing all of these things that I want to do and make money of. I don't know. I'm thinking that it's a, it's an unrequited love situation. So if I can't have her, no one has her. Curse no one her can pleasure. have her little buttocks and they're playing. Yeah. I think it might be like, you know, curse her little buttocks. Like she goes around waving it around here. I don't think so. So I, <laughs> This will show her. I don't really know. But what I do know is that these were pretty common, which, again, like I said, this is something that still goes on today. And what I find very interesting about these, like I said, they are more to restrain, but there are curses out there to harm. Not all curse tablets are holding back so much animosity. Between 1500 and like 1800 examples of cursed tablets are known to archeologists. So they've had a chance to really read these and kind of categorize them. So we know that they are shown to offer curses to love rivals. 
as Eric believes, business competitors, athletes, personal rivals, or generally just somebody who did something wrong to you. Basically, these are so common that it's starting to sound like the equivalent of a a bad Yelp review of antiquity. (laughs) Um, You know, so if you went and got subpar customer service, like, oh, Athenius was terrible to me. I'm cursing him. We find this in in a bunch of different cultures, though, right? I mean, the idea of cursing, the idea of wishing ill upon people. Either human nature. I mean, to an extent, but we're talking about like using consciousness, using human intent to have an impact on the physical world. Yes. And there are theories about why, just as many theories on why practically as there are types of curses. So, you know, some people think that it was risk mitigation, that the person who would have been in the position of less power would have felt like this is a way for them to up the stakes, you know, kind of up the ante, give them more power if they felt like they were being taken advantage of, you know, they got bad cheese at the market. So, you know, (laughs) screw you for giving me bad cheese. I'm cursing you. So it kind of makes you feel like you have some control in the situation. Right. And bad cheese can give you a binding anyway. (laughs) It's a different kind of binding spell. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely. Well, I'm also, I was thinking here of like American hoodoo culture, like in Southern, you know, the Southern States of the United States. Um, I'm familiar with those. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But you had people who were called hoodoo doctors, right? And this was very prevalent, not exclusively, but largely in the African-American community in the South. And hoodoo, I don't know um, how familiar folks are with it, but it's a collection of spiritual practices. Uh, Many of them are uh, spiritual practice survivals from West African spiritual practices. Uh, Some of it is folk religion from Europe as well, kind of mixed together in a shaker. But you had folks who were able to, they were specialists in both removing and placing, you know, Misfortune upon people. Yeah, they didn't call them curses. They called them jinxes, tricks, uh, putting the root on you. There's a bunch of different things it was named as, but it, we're talking about basically the same thing here. Definitely. And I don't think that those are the only two spots, right, in, in all Absolutely. of human history. Absolutely not. I mean, they can be found. So any Mediterranean culture, I mean, you can find curses in the Bible. <laughs> yes. You can find curses in ancient Norse writing. My favorite, well, or least favorite, my favorite is um, they had a cursed stick where you would have a horse's skull on top of it. Although I hear that sheep's skull works just as well. And they'd have runes on the outside. You'd hold this staff and point it towards someone and you'd say the curse. Uh, I Interestingly, I've heard that it happened in the 21st century from like some bad politics. And so someone was out there cursing a politician he didn't like with one of these. <laughs> and I, I was reading about a um, Aboriginal nation in Australia. Mm-hmm. And there the curse was, and again, I, I apologize. My knowledge of Aboriginal nations in Australia is pretty limited. Um, I have to admit. But and you so have I, been to Australia. I have been to Australia and I've, I've you know, and I've met folks there, some of which were part of the Aboriginal nations. And I don't know which nation, and I apologize for that. But one of the nations that I was reading about had in their past a practice of placing misfortune upon someone by pointing a bone that was shaved into a point Mm -hmm. and then kind of like focusing ill will upon them. And this was widely regarded as having like very, very serious consequences, even to the point of death. 
Yeah, and, and speaking of death, so like the ancient Greeks and these curse tablets they did, they would literally take these curses to their grave. And by that, I mean, literally, graves have been dug up where there are bodies that have been holding these curse tablets. And placing a curse in your tomb was believed to expedite the curse because the gods of the underworld would then be able to receive this curse and they could enact it. So it actually made the curse stronger to take it to your grave. And you have to admire that commitment. <laughs> you are not playing when you're like the last <laughs> thing you do on this planet is screw that guy. And honestly, it makes me kind of understand my uh, Italian grandfather a little better, not going to lie. <laughs> <laughs> that man had some commitment. But no, you, you I, I, yeah, I could see him doing something like that. But you, you have to admire the commitment to taking this to your grave. And what's interesting, like sending an express mail. And what's interesting is that like putting it in the ground, putting it in your tomb, um, putting it in a well. Now, these tablets were usually made out of lead. It could be made out of wax, although obviously those aren't going to survive quite as well. Broken pieces of pottery, we've seen some on papyrus, and that's, but lead seems to be the most common. And it At had least some the magical. Survived the best. Yeah, plus it had some magical properties, like making your making them leaden, making them heavy, mm. and it's a little concerning because again, one of the good places to put it was in a well. <laughs> right. Yeah. So you just picture There's some the guy. Whole town. <laughs> yeah, like man, you gave me a great curse against Erasmus. It worked like a charm. Every time he goes to the well, he looks real sick. I mean, of course. Meanwhile, everyone in the town seems just a <laughs> yeah. little bit off. Oh, yeah. You know, every time. I I drink out of that well, I feel a little, it's just too powerful. So yeah, definitely the lead tablet was probably eh, something we want to avoid. So if can I get lead tablets on like Etsy? Is that a thing still? Well, I mean, I can, yeah, I think you can definitely curse tablets from Etsy. So that's interesting that you say that because um, curses have changed over time. At least these curse <laughs> tablets, they've changed over time, but we know they're still around. And the earliest of these curse tablets that we found they don't mention the name of the, the cursed. Well, no, they, they, they name the cursed, right? They don't name the cursor. No, the original ones don't name anybody. They don't okay. name the cursed. They don't name the cursor. They don't name uh, the gods. They don't it. even name the gods or the spirits. They're just random bad ill will. Huh? Yeah, just kind of. And I guess someone's like, mm, I think it would be more effective if we put the name of the cursed. <laughs> and so in the later ones, could, yeah, you just, this could be, you know, this could be indiscriminate cursing it could land anywhere. That's right. You don't want that indiscriminate cursing. You want it to be directed. You could get blowback. And so the cursed would be named. And so would the gods, they would Hera, Hades, um, Hades and gods of the underworld were specifically mentioned or gods of like the in-between. And you had some really good insight on why underworld gods might be. The concept in, you know, I don't know exactly what era we're talking about here, but I know that there like was 400 a BCE to like, I think a little bit after the common era. The idea of the afterlife for many Greek cultures was the idea that you'd be living as a shade. You'd be living as literally a shadow of your former self, a gloomy Gus hanging out underground in the abode of the underworld. I mean, if you think about the, um, the story of um persephone. oh goodness is it persephone is that the pomegranates and the right and, and orpheus yeah uh no it's a different story <laughs> okay but they're both under they're both underworld stories right 
Yeah, I watched a lot of Xena, so if I'm wrong on this, <laughs> <laughs> we blame Xena. I'm like pretty sure. <laughs> right. And you know what's really funny is like both of these are both well-known myths, you know, Greek myths, and both of us are like, I don't know. <laughs> we I, got this obscure stuff from like <laughs> I, you know, I, yeah, I'm not a scholar of antiquity. I apologize. Yeah, yeah. Well, both okay, I'm doubling down. Both the Persephone story and the Orpheus story locate the abode of the dead as underground like in caves, you know in caverns yeah Zena totally went there too just so you know (laughs) (laughs) what was Gabrielle like Marcus it was Marcus (laughs) oh of course um but right so in both of these stories though we have the abode of the dead being located as a geographic place underground so the idea of burying the tablet you know in the ground seems to make sense if like who you're trying to get to is the god of the underworld Absolutely. I mean, you're just basically sending it to him. Absolutely. And, you know, even better, you can take it yourself when you're dead. And, you know, you can take it yourself and petition for bad cheese guy to have to join you. What do you have to lose? Really bind him up. (laughs) Bind him up. All right. So... So the other thing about these cursed tablets, moving on, the other thing about these cursed tablets is that while scholars have said there's a mix of amateur and professional scribes writing these out, the scholarship does seem to point the ma- to the majority of them being done by a professional. So not unlike your hoodoo practitioner or like mm-hmm. hoodoo specialists. And they thought that these professionals were also following a formula. Of course, this is in later tablets or cursed tablets. Yeah. So sometimes it appeared that it was already written and that the specifics are put in later. So I imagine it like a cursed salesman going door to door with like a Mad Libs style t- lead tablet. <laughs> like, hey, give me a name. Okay, body part. <laughs> okay, location. <laughs> adverb. What's an adverb again? It runs in L-Y. Yeah. So yeah, um, I'm imagining it actually is like, you know, those carts they used to have um, in the malls that used to sell like earrings or like, you know, cell phone cases. Mm-hmm. Like there's one for like lead tablets with curses. Oh, so like lead tablets with curses, Mm -hmm. lead tablets with cursing your charioteer rival. Athletic curses were actually really common too. So we have like the erotic curses and we had like the... (laughs) Well, there's our band name for the week, the erotic curses. (laughs) The erotic curses. Actually, um, they found this group of erotic curses and they had been, and they found them with a bunch of offerings to the gods and they found what had they found it underneath what had been an early Christian settlement. Um, and they had no. found, yeah, they found it under their, like under their fields. <laughs> they were doing their uh, wholesome farming underneath these early erotic tablets. And that cracked me up a little bit. <laughs> so over, over. Yeah. So it was somebody who was a professional doing this, but if you're not a professional and you're interested in doing your own ancient Greek curse tablet, I would say start with pottery, probably not lead. Uh, make sure to name name your intended victim get creative here you can name the cheese guy you can name a love rival you can name the love rivals cheese guy that's fine throw in some spite and some pettiness right because not only is zoe's cursed but her pleasure so she doesn't get any pleasure out of life that's pretty petty Mm. and while a grave or a well is best you can just dig a hole plop the curse in bake it at ground temperature for 2000 years and you've got yourself an ancient greek curse and that curse is gonna it's gonna hang out for a while i mean the curse has lived longer than the bones of either of the people who were involved that's right Uh, they don't know who those people might be but they definitely can read the curse so Hmm. 
it's common to theorize scholars, archaeologists, um, people that study this, that feeling cursed or cursing, and, and psychologists really like to talk about this, this being an attempt to gain control, or that curses, believing you're cursed, becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. And it is interesting to look at that point of view, at both of these points of view. Like, can curses help us to gain control? If you feel like you've done something, you've been wronged, and you're doing something wrong, sure. But whether you believe in curses or not, the ancient Roman scholar and author, Pliny the Elder, he makes a really good point. And he's often quoted as saying this. He says, there's no one who does not fear to be spellbound by curse tablets. And I... This guy again. <laughs> He's just given the bad cheese. He doesn't care. <laughs> I, I really oh, the other day. I really can't think of any reason I'd want to be on the receiving end of someone's negative attention like that. So I'm gonna agree with Pliny the Elder. Um, whether you believe in it or not, it yeah, you don't want that attention. So fair enough. That being said, without getting all James Frazier on this, the idea of wishing people ill and having your thoughts influence the physical world, right? That's, that's something that's, that's fairly universal in different cultures. And beliefs. Yeah. Yeah. We see it all over the place. And indeed, like it has its own 21st century uh, versions, right? We have a lot of, there's a lot of positive thought, right? Think your way into success. And, but the idea is the same. The idea is, is that thoughts manifest themselves in the physical world. And of course, if you are living in a Newtonian physics kind of mechanistic world, the idea of thoughts influencing matter directly doesn't make any sense, right? Because thoughts are immaterial and matter is material and the two don't influence directly each other which has a really hard time explaining how brains work. But anyway, sorry, I'm not a Newtonian. I don't even play one on TV. But that's sort of like the, the you know, that's the model that most folks in the 21st century are still using is, you know, many sensible people, whatever that may be, seem to think that the idea of cursing or blessing people or in any way thoughts or intentions influencing people, there's a lot of folks who would think that that's a bunch of, you know, garbage. But I would like to point out that, you know, the opposite of cursing is blessing. I just mentioned that. But the idea of a blessed object is something that's prevalent in, you know, different religious traditions. Also just lucky objects. Mm. So, I mean, just going without religion, the idea of something being lucky, it's secular and it's very common. Sure. And I mean, having like, a, you know, particular mojo or a, a vibe or just like good luck. This is your lucky charm. These are my lucky socks. And where I wear my lucky socks, my team always wins. Mm -hmm. just, just kidding. I don't watch sports. But <laughs> but do you have lucky socks? I don't. I don't have lucky socks. Mm. I do have a favorite spoon, but I don't think it's particularly lucky. I just prefer it to the others. I have a favorite burner on my stove. Ah, see. That's not so lucky, though. No. It's just a good burner. But yeah, no, I think that, yes, I see with the blessed objects, but you also see lucky objects, which are kind of the opposite of cursed in a way. But if you, you know, if you think about what, what is a blessed object, right? Like I'm wearing one right now. It is part of my religious tradition that certain objects can be considered sacred or blessed and set apart from, from secular use. And that, again, in my tradition of Christianity, that can extend to 
objects used during uh, sacraments. So like you would never, for example, use a chalice or a patent that is used for uh, communion as just like, an, you know, you're not going to sit down and just slurp it out of the, out of the, the chalice, you know, mm-hmm. like that's a sacred object. Yes, but to a non-believer, and I'm not going to get all Marcia Iliata sacred and profane to you, <laughs> or am I? I'm not, but you how know. Many, how many religious studies professors or theorists are we going to name drop today? So yeah, it's name dropping that Marcia Iliata. But um, so, but the thing is, is that yes, in a religion that's- Didn't our teacher but, study under him? Uh, yes, he did. <laughs> so, but, <laughs> so I'm hearing you, but but it's not quite the same, is it? Well, is it? Because like, okay, so these blessed medals are on my neck that are um, dedicated to a saint. Mm -hmm. They were blessed by a priest friend of mine. And uh, aren't these supposed to confer some some sort special spiritual power for good? Well, you tell me. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, isn't that the whole idea of blessing? And so cursing is the opposite of blessing, right? Where the idea that an, an object can be infused with ill will much in the same way, I guess uh, we really are kind of, we're digging our way down a very deep jackalope hole. I'm turning around. That's where the curses are. <laughs> That's right. Don't go there. Don't go there, Eric. That's where the curses are. So I'm, I, I'm climbing up. I'm climbing up. So I hear what you're saying, though. You're saying there's cursed objects and there can be blessed objects. Fine. Let's talk about my cursed object. Yeah, that's exactly where we're going now. <laughs> Use your antlers, climb up. Without randomly name dropping any other religious studies uh, theorist. um, Jonathan Z. Smith. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. Rudolph Otto. Um, I feel like we're like uh, the worst wonder twins ever. (laughs) Nidian Smart. (laughs) (laughs) Of phenomenology. Okay, go ahead. at least we entertain ourselves here (laughs) (laughs) anyhow so i have a cursed op where i had a cursed object i got rid of it for real (laughs) (laughs) you know seriously okay um i don't know if it really was or not but enough bad things happened that i didn't want to chance it so here's the story of it so my brother back in the 80s my family is, is really into the Beatles. My brother listened to the Beatles. I grew up listening to the Beatles. And so my brother, you know, when, when John Lennon was murdered, everyone in my house was pretty upset. And, but my brother heard that the assassin of John Lennon had a copy of Catcher on the Rye on him. And after he had, you know, done that horrible murder, he sat down and started reading it until he was. That is so macabre. (laughs) It really is. But my, so my, my brother wanted to read the book after that. That's, that's what's macabre. <laughs> okay, fair enough. I think he was trying to figure out, like, what is the connection, you know? And obviously, I don't know, for those of you who had to read Catcher in the Rye or read it of their own volition, like, there is no connection, right? The story has nothing to do with any of that. But that's a, just an interesting historical artifact. Well, you know, my brother's like, he actually liked the book. And he's like, this is a really cool book. It, I, I like the tone of the author. It makes you feel, it's very conversational. And it makes you feel like you could write a book. And so I remember um, borrowing the book from him you know, forever. <laughs> so I got this purloined book. And I, I kind of held on to it for a while. And I didn't read it immediately. 
but then in a few years later, I moved out of, um, out of our house. I moved in with another relative for school purposes. And one night where I should say, I started reading the book and I was like, oh my gosh, he's right. This is really, this is a really interesting book. I love the tone. I like the, the tone of the author. And I was just really enjoying reading Catcher in the Rye. Well, that night I got into a horrendous fight with this family member that I was living with. Because you're channeling Holden Caulfield. Yeah, probably. Well, I mean, I was, <laughs> Becca, you know better. I was channeling Holden Caulfield long before I got a hold yeah, of that book. Yeah, okay. But um, I ended up having, you know, to leave the house for the night. And I ended up spending the night in a park, um, on a park bench, reading Catcher in the Rye all night. It was yes. summer. so it wasn't... That is so emo. <laughs> oh, it was so emo. Um, I was emo. This is, of course, before emo existed, but yes. Um, this is in the, you know, well, if emo was happening, it was happening just a, in know, your or, park bench, it was happening on that park bench. That's for darn sure. Okay. Sorry. I, I... <laughs> well, and you know, possibly in DC about 35 miles to the South and West okay. of me, but like emo, you know, hadn't made it out of that yet. So anyhow, um, there I am sleeping on a park bench reading, you know, reading, uh, Holden coffee on blah, 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 catch her in the right. Well, that's just an interesting fact, right? I read a book. I got kicked out of my house for the night. The next day it was fine. I, everything got smoothed over and everything was fine. And I was fine. No big deal. So the book travels with me because I don't throw books away, especially books I like, which is why I have so many darn books right now. But flash forward to a few years later, um, for reasons that I'm not entirely sure about, I decided I wanted to read Catch from the Rye again. So I cracked open my same copy that I'd carried with me. And lo and behold, in the middle of the book, um, I get word that someone that I really cared about died. Mm. And I was devastated. But I kept reading till the end. You know, at this point, it's just becoming like, that's just a weird coincidence, right? I mean, I've read the same copy of Catcher in the Rye twice. And twice, you know, something really terrible has happened. And, you know, again, kind of stuffed the book away and didn't think about it. Well, a few years later, again, go down the line. Um, now I've graduated college and I've become a teacher and I'm hanging out at my school and there's a copy of Catcher in the Rye, like is want to be in a school and it's my break. And so I start reading it and I'm like, oh my gosh, I forgot how much I love this book. You know, I love the way the, you know, the, the, the tone of the narrator is really uh, conversational and breezy and you kind of get sucked into the story very quickly. And I was really liking it. And so I put the book back on the shelf because it wasn't my copy, but that's okay. Cause I have my own copy at home. That's right. Yeah. And so I go home and I, you know, I sort through and I find my old paperback copy of Catcher in the Rye. Uh, it's the one that's maroon with yellow letters. Um, and it's got like a crease on the cover, you know, going diagonally. And it's got, you know, the spine is peeled off a little. And so I start reading it again. And once again, my life is thrown into complete upheaval as like a series of things goes wrong. And like, I end up like having to, we're not having to, but getting, uh, losing my job at that school and, you know, going to another school. Um, they had too many history teachers all of a sudden. Um, I found out that, have you ever heard the word surplus used as a verb? No. Yeah. I got surplused. If you know what that means in teacher speak, that means that they have too many teachers in a particular, uh, particular subject and like, you know, first in first out type of thing. And I was a young new teacher. And so off my butt, you know, off of my butt, I went. And um, at that point, I was like, you know what? I'm never reading this copy of Catcher in the Rye ever again. 
And, the, you know, okay, once again, the story ended fine. I ended up getting rehired, um, and I'm, you know, everything's fine. Yeah. How long between that instance and you getting rid of the book? Like, how long did it take after that? <laughs> Just got rid of the book maybe a year or two ago. Uh, oh, no! <laughs> well, it only, the curse only seemed to activate when I read it. And so that seems like a pretty easy, you know what I mean? Like, well, <laughs> doctor, doctor, it hurts when I do this. Well, don't do that. <laughs> Right. So I, I didn't read the book again. I just, and I kind of felt Becca. I kind of felt bad about like throwing it out. Right. Like what if I threw this book out and like somebody walks by and they're like, Hey, free copy of catcher in the rye. And they start reading it and their life goes, you know, to crap. What if you burned it? You've come on, you've watched supernatural, you know, better. <laughs> yeah, you don't want to burn those things. No, you don't burn cursed objects, right? No, I did my research. Um, in you Zena, know, because... supernatural, all my knowledge of this just comes from TV. <laughs> Whereas mine is, if you look at my Google searches, like you just have like a complete list of the most random, crazy stuff. How to get rid of cursed objects? Um, is Marseille Eliad? Uh, <laughs> never mind. So, um. <laughs> No, so you got rid of your curse, and and luckily, ancient the ancients found this out too. Like you can use ceremonies, you can use symbols, amulets. Um, I think most people are aware of those mm -hmm. evil eye. Mm -hmm. No, the the amulets that you use against an evil eye, where they look like a glass eyeball, kind of a big, that beautiful blue colored glass. You you said you have one. I have one over my door. Yes. Yeah, I actually do too, because, you know, grandma and the Maloikia. <laughs> but so, yeah, the, you, there's tactics to ward these off. And what, what I find interesting, though, is like, for the most part, people feel like they've done something wrong. So they've wronged someone and they're cursed. They took something that wasn't theirs. There's quite a few people um, who have taken rocks from Gettysburg, uh, national cemetery they've taken from the gettysburg battlefield they've taken these rocks and they send them back because they say look i know i wasn't supposed to take this rock i took this rock bad things happened to me and i think that kind of started with um at hawaii right that the idea of taking uh the lava rocks from hawaii would upset madame pele and i wouldn't say that would be the first time because i know as we both know that these are sort of cross-cultural mm -hmm. um, and cross-historical so we know these things have happened so i'm guessing that there's others but yeah people get this idea i did something wrong i want to atone so they do something take something that wasn't theirs you have to make appeasement another way though is that you can make friends with your demons or horse or your demon horse <laughs> uh, <laughs> One of my favorite cursed objects, supposedly cursed objects, is put up in February of 2008. And it's a giant anatomically correct. So giant as in 32 feet tall, anatomically correct, rearing electric blue stallion with menacingly glowing red eyes that actually light up. So they really do glow. I mean, it was put up outside of the Denver airport. And I've seen this horse. It is not just red eyes. I mean, like it has like a scary looking face. It is intimidating. It's it, yeah. It's a you know, 
a rearing horse. So the moment this went up in 2008, uh, people began to complain. So you had groups, you had petitions to remove it. Um, you had people on the internet that had Facebook groups called DIA's heinous blue Mustang has got to go. Um, heinous blue Mustang. <laughs> heinous blue Mustang, because that's what it's called. It's, its name is actually blue Mustang, but other people christened it Satan's Stallion, the Nightmare Horse, the Demon Horse, and then my favorite, and that's the one that stuck someone, I did not come up with it, but Blucifer. That's my <laughs> because, favorite too. Yeah, it's this blue demon horse. So people wanted it down. For the most part, everything I heard, because again, I was flying, I was flying out of Denver pretty often in 2008. I didn't like it. I'm a little afraid to fly. So <laughs> being afraid to fly and driving, you know, to <laughs> the Denver airport. Yeah. Well, to the Denver airport, which is pretty much in Kansas, like you just keep driving, you'll get there. So, you know, finally having this anxiety and then seeing a demon blue horse is a little anxiety. Uh, Plus, you know, all the conspiracy theories about the Denver airport. Yeah. Which one day we'll get into. We won't get into it on this one, but we will get into We will acknowledge. We will acknowledge the denver airport conspiracy theories we've made a space yes can i just mention that why i like that particular um conspiracy theory because it doesn't seem to have a partisan goal you know like i really am tired of like conspiracy theories that that's what the aliens want you to think Yeah, um, this nightmare horse, amongst other rumors about the Denver airport, was that it was accursed. That this, like, not only because of how it looked, but the rumor was going around that it killed its maker. The nightmare horse with glowing eyes that that killed its maker. It did, unfortunately. So, unfortunately, the sculptor who created this, Luis Jimenez, he was killed in 2006 when he was making, when he was you know, building this blue Mustang, the statue weighs 900,000 pounds and a piece wow. of it fell on him and oh. killed him. So yes, that part is true, but mm. that didn't stop the blue Mustang from going up. His staff and his family helped to finish this and it did go up. And the thing is, and you were talking about the DIA, this was commissioned much earlier. So this was actually commissioned in 1993. When was and the airport built? I think it was commissioned around when the airport was built, but I think the airport was built. I actually don't know. I feel honest. like it's more recent than that, but I really don't know. Oh, it's not more recent. Like what they would commission it. Anyway, I'm not going to go off this because I absolutely don't know. Yeah, you, I don't either. So, But if you talking. know, I you don't. can. But <laughs> if someone knows, they can tell us at Jackalope Carnival on Instagram. <laughs> oh, yeah. Becca, do we have an Instagram page? We do. It's at Jackalope Carnival. You can find us there. So, Lucifer is finished by him and his staff. And the people were so unhappy about Lucifer that the city decided to make an address. They addressed this. They're like, okay, we know you don't like this, but we paid $300,000 for this. It's going to stay up for five years. So I remember thinking, okay, well, well, we'll wait and see. So that date's come and gone. It was 2013. And you can still see Lucifer hanging out in front of DIA. And it's not to say that it doesn't still have people who don't like it, but for the most part, some people grudgingly accepted it. And some people start to see this, 
imposing stallion as really being part of Colorado, of being part of the landscape. But they also see it as a protector. Like, yeah, maybe it's warding off those who wish travelers harm. There is like uh, uh, other instances of this in uh, human cultures, right? Like, absolutely. You have Kali in, in Southern Asia, who's like a very fierce character, but also very protective of she's her a mother followers. goddess. Yeah, she's a mother. So the 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 neighborhood, the people of Denver, have the most part made friends with their demon horse, and. Uh, <laughs> Which is really another way you can do this. Yeah, and we hope you do too. So thank you for listening to Jackalope Carnival. That's all for this week. And we hope you join us in another two weeks to hear our next episode. Thanks very much. Take care, folks. Jackalope Carnival!